HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Hey there, you're listening to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. I'm Wythe Marshall. I'm joined by Allie Whist. Hello. Melissa Metric. Hi, guys. And today we have a guest who's also kind of a co-producer, Jeffrey Landau. Hey, what's up, Jeff? Hey, everyone. How's everyone Uh, doing? Thanks for making it. So today we are going to sort of do an interview, sort of a conversation and get to know um, Jeff and his work a little better. It's very relevant to this podcast. And uh, he's also been taping some interviews, which we'll talk a little about. And he's been nice enough to share uh, some of them with us. So you're actually going to hear some of his work um, on fields as kind of a a uh, co-produced series that we hope to explore about urban agriculture and policy and uh, urban agriculture in some cities beyond New York, although Jeffrey certainly knows a lot about New York as well. So I guess to get right into it, um, Jeffrey, do you want to give us a little background? Uh, you know, who, who are you? Why are we talking to you? Yeah. So um, first off, thank you guys for having me excited to, to be on and to share a bit more about what I'm doing. Um, I am the Director of Business Development at Agritecture. We are a global consulting firm that specializes in the design and feasibility of urban agriculture projects around the world, um, primarily in controlled environment agriculture, but we do everything from soil-based farms to rooftop farms to greenhouses and vertical farms. Um, and through this position, I've been very fortunate enough to really see farms from around the world, from places like the Netherlands to Kosovo to Saudi Arabia um, to here in America. Um, And within the last six months, I've been doing a farm tour around the country 
visiting different farms in different cities, different states, interviewing different farmers from across the spectrum, whether they're large-scale greenhouses, 3,000-acre regenerative ag farms, or if they're coming from the policy side and working in city government trying to better strengthen their local food systems through urban agriculture. Nice. Um, so I think that's an awesome, succinct summary. Um, maybe to take it a little bit deeper, could you tell us like what brought you to urban agriculture? Like, How did you end up um, not only working for a company that's pretty specific in focusing on urban ag, but now uh, kind of going all over and, and, and really getting into all different, um, yeah, just farms? Yeah, um, this this is a question I get most often, um, and I think really what led me down this path was just the exposure to agriculture. Not like a traditional farm, but more in the sense that from a very young age, you know, my grandmother had this beautiful garden that we would visit every summer, and in it there were carrots, strawberries, these plants like herb garden, fruit trees, and just having that formative experience from a young age, I think kind of set the the groundwork to where I am now. And, you know, I grew up in South Florida. My my home in South Florida had lots of different fruit trees from, you know, orange, grapefruit, lemon, lime. We had mango trees, banana, um, and our own herb garden. And I, I think um, reflecting on this this childhood, one experience that I really would like to highlight is that in the early 2000s, um, the city came to our door because there was a canker outbreak in our county. And canker is a bacterial infection that's very detrimental to the citrus industry. And as a result, if there were any infected trees in a certain radius, they would have to come around and cut down any citrus tree to avoid the spread. And we had this beautiful grapefruit tree that we used to harvest like every season. And I just remember, I think I was like 11, 12 the city coming down and just cutting down this tree. And I think it was, it was so heartbreaking, maybe not at the time, but later on um, that it has just stuck with me since, since childhood, Um, you know, years later. Oh yeah, Melissa. Oh yeah. Well, sorry. I just wanted to jump in because um, my, on my father's side, like my grandparents are all in South Florida and I remember that as well. And they had to chop down all their citrus trees, their grapefruit, their orange, all their stuff. And it, and for them, th- these were like 100-year-old trees. So for them, it, it was very, very sad as well. So sorry. Just I was like, oh, yeah. my God, I remember that. So, so yeah. yeah. It, like, I understand why they did it. But the just like the loss of, of a food-producing tree that I think provides so many benefits besides like uh, food sovereignty or access to your own food, um, you know, really had an impact. Um, years later, I, you know, decided to study engineering at Georgia Tech. Um, and I came across these blogs of very futuristic illustrations of, of vertical farms. And this idea of producing in a city and seeing like this really sexy technology in these skyscrapers, you know, that really kind of just blew blew me away. And I think Through that, it led me down this path of trying to figure out more about hydroponics and urban farming. It led me to a nonprofit in Atlanta that was building hydroponic systems in in elementary schools. That led me to a part-time hydroponic retail job in Atlanta at Atlanta's Hydroponics, um, which led me to the blog Agritecture, 
um, which eventually led me to a workshop Agritecture was producing, which led me to meeting the team and joining the team in 2016. So um, it was just these little steps along the way that I think we're building towards um, a career and a passion that you know has really provided me with so much gratification and opportunities and, and learning experiences. I'm kind of curious what your viewpoint is on that first gaze you had on the sort of sexy utopian agricultural systems of um, sort of growing in cities and seeing the sleekness of the technology. And now that you're more enmeshed with it, you know, the the great benefits you see of it, but also just sort of your perspective on it now. Yeah, at, at first it was like, whoa, you know, this is what we could build. You know, it's kind of these futuristic ideas that like, you know, you can build a, a city on Mars. You can build farms in like massive, like 10, 20, 30 story skyscrapers. And I think that's very inspiring. Um, it was very inspiring for me. And I think it's very inspiring for a lot of individuals, um, mainly young people that I talk to today about, you know, farming isn't just about being in the rural countryside you know, you can farm in a city where, you know, a lot of millennials, you know, ourselves included live in these urban environments. I think as I, I started to learn more about the industry, about controlled environment agriculture and about farming in general, um, it's not as sexy as, you know, these illustrations. You know, farming is a very tough business. Um, it's an incredibly tough lifestyle. Um, the farm doesn't sleep, the plants don't sleep, and, and neither do you. So there's no vacation there's no holidays, you know, you are sun up to sundown working on the farm. Um, and I think it's humbled me and showed, given me a lot of respect and admiration to, to those that are pursuing, you know, farming careers, whether they are from, you know, multi-generational farms or starting their own farm for the first time, whether it's an urban farm, you know, a rural farm, um, or really anything in the, the agricultural industry. Got it. So um, I, th- I think that leads us to your current tour to some degree, uh, which is uh, about all kinds of farms. And some of them, I, I think, are somewhat futuristic and some of them are, are very much not. Right. Um, so can you tell us a little about what you're up to now and how that idea sort of got started? Because that's that's pretty different from your day job in some ways. Right. I mean, it dovetails because it's all about farming and you're becoming even more of an expert. But to some degree, it's a real commitment to decide to just like go from farm to farm exploring uh, for an unknown amount of, of months, uh, you know. Uh, so, yeah, tell us that story. Yeah. So, you know, in in um, August of last year, I made the decision to purchase a van really to to see the country and to take advantage of an opportunity that, you know, I had, was presented to, you know, see what's out there in, in America, you know, see the countryside, see different states that I've never seen before. Um, and really take on this this challenge of building a camper van, you know, which has been you know, pretty mainstream nowadays. Um, and through this building process, you know, I started thinking a, a bit more about like, what am I going to be doing on this on this journey? You know, it's not just about going to national parks. It's not about, you know, taking the glam shots of, you know, whatever mountainside you're on. Um, and I realized, you know, quite easily that, you know, I could make a farm tour out of this and I can go and see not just, you know, clients that I've worked with from my job, but also other farms that are, are working in the industry, really trying to answer or build a more resilient food system. And I think that was kind of like the, the genesis of this idea of like, you know, how do I know what I know in my industry? 
besides just seeing it online or talking to people, you know, why not go see it in person and talk to people that are doing the actual work and, and sharing their story. And I think, you know, because I've been fortunate enough to work for, you know, such a great company like Agritecture, I was able to, to use my network and my existing knowledge to, to reach out to farms that I already knew, farms that I knew through my network or farms that may not have heard of me, but were open to hosting an individual that was very much passionate and interested um, and just looking to learn more about what they're doing, how they're doing to, to share their story, you know, with a larger audience. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges or issues that, you know, we face is that there is just such a large disconnect between farmers and consumers. Um, and as a result, a lot of people, a lot of young people don't really understand uh, where their food's coming from. How does it get onto the grocery store? You know, what's happening behind the scenes when you put something in your Amazon shopping cart and click a but- button or an Instacart. So being able to share those stories and shine a bit more light on the people that are producing our food um, is really kind of what's motivating me to to do this and to really you know challenge myself into how do I know what I know. Got it. So what's what's been the biggest um, surprise so far? What's been one of the takeaways, one of the, the stories where you're like, wow, I didn't really get that until I went and saw it? Oh, man. Um, that's a good question. I think the the notion that large farms um, are the answer. I think that has really like challenged me that it doesn't have to be the largest farm to produce the most amount of food for all the people. I think what I'm starting to learn and to see is that you can build, you know, smaller to medium sized farms, specialty farms that are working in an ecosystem in collaboration to, to build stronger uh, regional food systems. So, you know, visiting a farm called White Oak Pastures in southwest Georgia, you know, they're all about using regenerative agriculture principles to working with the land to really produce the products that go to market. And their whole goal is not to scale, but to repeat their model in other parts of the country. It's not about, you know, a copy and paste. It's about understanding what are the natural ecosystems that you can work with um, at a certain size? And then how can you take those learnings and share it among the larger industry so that other people can work at this under their own climate conditions, under the, their own local context? Um, so, you know, that was a really aspiring, um, inspiring trip for myself. Um, and I'm excited to share that interview. And I think what's also been very surprising is just how much of a catch-up game cities are now playing. You know, cities for the longest part, for the longest time, um, never really incorporated agriculture into policy or really built um, initiatives or incentives to incentivize local producers in cities. And we're seeing cities now take more initiative um, to build those relationships and to build that ecosystem. Um, Atlanta, for instance, has been a city since I think 2015, 2016, that brought on the first urban ag director as part of the city's office in in the U.S. You know, that was a big step for a pretty sizable city. We're now seeing this in D.C., in Baltimore, in Philadelphia, um, even in Dallas and other cities. You know, they are now really taking into account what does it mean to not just distribute food among its residents, but also produce its own food 
not be so reliant on importing from you know places like California or Arizona or New Mexico or Mexico or even Canada. Well, wow, that's great. Um, yeah, I really, I really like uh, what you're saying there, and I think I agree. And that's maybe one reason we wanted to do the podcast. And thinking back, Melissa, at some of our conversations, but to um, in a way have an excuse to learn more about some of what's going on. Um, you know, in our own backyard that we may not pay attention to because it falls just outside of like narrow job tasks, uh, but then also in other cities. And then if you sort of link those things up, then there's kind of patterns. So uh, I think one that you've identified that we want to talk more about this season is policy. And I think that's one reason we were excited when you reached out, um, mentioning you had some tape of, you know, speaking with people involved in urban ag in, let's say, Atlanta, uh, which just happens to be the city I was born in and and lived in for a long time. So um, I haven't lived there in a long time, but I'm still very curious. And I read all these great stories about, wow, there's all this urban farming. There's a a food forest there um, that's new and, uh, and is different from what's going on in New York city. But I also see some parallels in that, okay, here's two large cities that are thinking about, um, what can be grown, what should be grown, how can it be grown in a more equitable way? Um, who should sort of be in charge of that? How, where does the money come from? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to those episodes. Um, and in general, I guess, as you travel from place to place, kind of being able to maybe touch base with you and, and sort of check in and say, okay, you know, what is it like? For example, you mentioned Detroit, um, another awesome place that I know has a lot of urban ag, but it's, you know, it's not in my network. So it'd be great to sort of know um, maybe who should we talk to and and just kind of uh, lean on you as a sort of roving correspondent, uh, um, as the old media used to do. Um, I assume some of them still do it. I don't really know. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of not a question, but I, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, to, to queue up, I think some of the interviews we're going to hear are coming from some specific lines of inquiry that you're, you're sort of passionate about. And I think we also were interested in, um, you know, in parallel. So it's nice to kind of be able to bring that together and, and hopefully, you know, drive it toward an audience that's also you know, looking for that content. I think what's so interesting about um, urban agriculture is that, you know, urban and agriculture mean completely different things to a variety of different people, you know, depending on where they're coming from and who you ask. So, you know, Detroit as an urban city is vastly different from New York City, which is vastly different from Atlanta or D.C., in agriculture, you know, there are so many forms, different forms of production methods, whether you're doing traditional row cropping, whether you're doing high tunnels or hoop houses or greenhouses or vertical farms or mushrooms, whatever it may be. And what's been so exciting to see is, you know, what is urban agriculture in all these different cities? You know, Detroit, which has a lot of vacant, abandoned properties and land, um, has a lot of, you know, soil based um, operations that are, have been going on for some time. Um, Chicago as well, you know, has quite a a wide variety and mix Atlanta itself. You know, they have so many different organizations, um, that I was able to interview and just to see, um, who is farming on these pieces of land and who are they serving, um, their produce to, and, you know, what is their mission and their objectives? Um, it's just so inspiring and enlightening and, learning, you know, what the power of food and growing your own food can do, not just for the individual, but for communities and for cities as a whole. Yeah, I was just going to say that I really like the idea of uh, doing these interviews on farms. And I'm really excited for some of our upcoming interviews, because I think the physicality of a farm, whether it's a vertical farm or an urban farm, is an important aspect 
And while our listeners are listening to audio, I think we're all invested in as much as we can kind of getting into the embodied and sensory experience of being on a farm and what it means to talk to people who are really there um, and kind of traveling to these places and knowing what distance means, you know, distance to a farm, like you were saying, is something people really don't have a good sense of. Um, and so much as you are able to literally travel there and visit these places, it gives a different perspective um, and sort of orientation to what farming means in all these different places. You know, I think for for anyone listening that um, wants to learn more about agriculture, urban agriculture, um, see where the closest farmer's market is to you. You know, go there maybe early and just talk to a farmer. You know, ask them how long they've been farming for, how do they farm, what do they enjoy about farming, because farming is a pretty, pretty tough lifestyle, as I mentioned. So, you know, wh- why do you do it? You know, why are you spending countless hours in the field for, you know, low to medium margins, um, doing backbreaking work um, and feeling maybe like underappreciated. You know, I think having those conversations is probably a great place to start for anyone that's trying to, to learn more about the industry. Um, and that's typically what I recommend to anyone that I come across, you know, go to a farmer's market, talk to a farmer. Um, you know, if you really want to experience it, go volunteer, whether it's, you know, building a relationship with someone at your farmer's market or working at a community garden or doing woofing, you know, um, it is definitely an experience. And it's crazy to think that, you know, generations ago, everyone worked on a farm. And in today's world, less than 2% of the U.S. workforce works on a farm. So, you know, we we are vastly disconnected from where our, our food is produced and how it gets to our plate. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, We are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. The other interesting aspect of um, Jeffrey being out in the field is um, all the things that are happening in the United States, in the world right now, um, especially specific to climate change and how you are out there in the world. Um, And have you noticed that when you're traveling around, when you're interviewing farmers, 
um, with all of these, you know, events that are happening via flood, via fires, all of that other thing and how that is affecting these farmers and food food production in general, like, has that been a topic that comes up at all? Or, you know, just you're traveling around, like what you've seen? Yeah. So for, you know, for farmers and farms that service direct to consumer or direct to, you know, restaurant, um, they probably had to drastically shift their business model when, when COVID hit, um, or they would have failed. And a lot of the farms that I did talk, have talked to, you know, did that. They moved away from selling to restaurants because all the restaurants shut down and they did these CSA models um, and found, you know, a lot of success in the fact that more and more people were starting to eat and cook at home. And as a result, had to purchase their own produce, whether it was at a grocery store, which, you know, we saw during the pandemic, shelves would go empty pretty quickly. Um, or if they went to a farmer's market that, you know, experienced, you know, rapid increase um, in people attending. So hearing how, you know, farmers were quick and agile to pivot away from one distribution channel to another can show the resilience in, you know, local food production. Um, a lot of produce is grown on the West Coast in the Salinas Valley, uh, comes in from Mexico or parts of Arizona during the wintertime. Um, and those supply chains are incredibly efficient, have been optimized for efficiency. But when there's a shock to the system, like a pandemic, you know, it is very difficult to reroute your produce from, you know, the thousands of grocery stores that are serviced on the East Coast to the individual consumer. Um, so for a producer, a small scale producer, you know, they have seen a lot of opportunity. Um, they've also experienced a lot of hardship as well. Um, and for the consumer, you know, I think it kind of pulled back the curtain as like, oh man, like this is kind of what the food system or the, the ag system is like, you know, why are the grocery store shelves empty? Why am I seeing, you know, tons of milk being dumped down the drain because these farmers can't, you know, push or move or redirect their product to different markets? Um, you know, why isn't more food going to these food pantries? Well, the food pantries are at capacity and are only um, able to hold as much as cold storage allows them to hold. So, you know, things about food safety have become more of an issue for the consumer. Um, supply chains are now more of a topic the consumer's thinking about. Um, and I think, you know, like the silver lining to the pandemic is that I think people are now taking this a bit more seriously. Um, when it comes to climate change, you know, I've, for the most part, as, as of today, have really been doing East Coast tours. But on the West Coast, you know, water is a, a massive issue. You know, water shortages, droughts um, have, have been for, you know, a very long time and even more so now been impacting farmers um, and really affecting, you know, the way the ag system um, operates. So I think consumers are going to see more and more issues now come to light as farmers are either letting their fields go fallow because they have limited or no water. Um, or if just the price of water starts, you know, increasing and they no longer want to grow certain crops in certain areas. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of challenges that our industry 
is facing, but I, I think through it, there's also a lot of opportunity and innovation that is coming with it to really kind of rebuild from the ground up, you know, our agricultural system. Um, and for me, I hope that is, you know, more regional resilient types of food systems that, you know, you're going to see in the Southeast or in the Northeast or in the mid Atlantic, um, or in the Southwest. So, um, it, it is quite a time to be in agriculture and ag tech right now. Yeah, and that's a great point because so many of the tools of agriculture that brought us to an, a highly productive agricultural system just aren't going to work looking forward and we're going to have to re-envision it in big ways. And I was, and a lot of these problems loop into each other. Um, I was just reading about um, coffee farming, which, you know, a lot of the regions where coffees farm might get too hot and too dry to continue producing coffee. So people have speculated that we could actually start growing coffee in California because it won't be as arid. But then you have the problem of water. Do we have enough water to actually water coffee farms in California? And so I think we see a lot of these looping and intersecting issues. And farmers are kind of on the frontier in a lot of ways of innovating around climate change. There, there are some great technologies that have come out, you know, over time. Drip irrigation has been a, like, fundamentally, like, life-changing technology for a lot of farmers in lots of different parts of the world. Um, and I think as the climate continues to change, different crops will be grown in different places. You know, coffee, for instance, um, cacao, I think is being discussed, you know, being grown in controlled environments or in different regions. And I think, you know, leafy green production, which primarily comes out of the West, is now going to shift and move, you know, to more regional production sites. Um, you know, in, in Georgia, for example, you know, there were very few production uh, farms doing leafy green mix on a, you know, large scale um, facility. And now we're seeing, you know, 20, 40, 50 acre greenhouse sites come up um, that are now producing leafy greens, as well as tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers and other crops that, you know, aren't traditionally grown at commercial scale in, in the Southeast. So, um, the, the landscape is changing. Um, and it's good to see and hear that more and more consumers are, are starting to notice. So to, to piggyback on that, I think one question for, from this podcast perspective would be, um, how is this affecting urban agriculture or how might changes in agriculture affect cities? Um, and I can think of, you know, some big ones like just climate migration would affect the character of cities, who's in cities. Um, if there's more mouths to feed, even more centrally, um, you know, may maybe that changes uh, some things in the food system in, in unpredictable ways. Um, we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, like food prices rise all over the place. And for the first time, you know, some shortages, um, not really based on like what's growing, but more getting it around efficiently. Uh, but we can imagine like future incidents like that. But I'm, I'm wondering if you have any insight into like things in, in urban agriculture that are changing due to climate, um, maybe, maybe positive or maybe negative, um, you know, that, that, that jump out uh, trends that you're seeing. Yeah, I think, I think from like a positive standpoint, you know, urban agriculture, you know, isn't, and I don't think should be solely focused on like production. You know, there are, there are a lot of benefits that urban agriculture provides to the environment, whether it's, you know, stormwater management and mitigation, whether it's combating um, urban heat island effect, which is definitely a huge issue 
among urban cities as the climate gets warmer, um, but also providing you know social and communal access to communities that might not have you know green space where they they are, um, or might be looking for a new career path or opportunity, um, and find that farming and growing food for you know their community is actually a pursuit that they want to you know take on. And I think what urban agriculture does is provide that access and that visibility to, hey, you know, I don't have to go live in the rural countryside to run, work, or even own a farm. I can do it here, you know, where I grew up, um, you know, supporting the people that I love most and really helping build my community to be more resilient um, to, you know, the wide and varying effects that climate change or other issues uh, might happen. So, you know, that is very inspiring to me to see, to go to different communities and see how um, urban agriculture can play that role. I think the notion that um, cities can solely produce for themselves, you know, that I think won't ever really happen. I just don't think there's enough space um, to do that. And I think trying to be fully reliant on urban agriculture um, is misguided or just not realistic. But I think building this regional food system where you have certain farms producing in the city and then certain farms around the city limits, like peri-urban, and then even rural farms, you know, doing crops that are best grown in rural environments, you know, large-scale row crops, whether it's wheat, corn, um, rice, soy, you know, those crops are needed, you know, for our society. Um, So I think... Understanding that urban agriculture plays a critical and pivotal role in the larger landscape, but it's not like the only tool in the toolbox. You know, that's what we say about vertical farming. It's just one tool that you have, you know, at hand, but vertical farming won't save the world. Um, And I think urban agriculture will have a great impact on the world, but I think it's just another solution um, or another tool that we have at our disposal that we may not have been taking as seriously up until, you know, the last few, you know, five, 10 years. That's great. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, we would all agree with you, I think, right, Melissa, Ali, that urban ag is not about productivism. Um, although certainly does involve growing food, but you know, the primary benefits are, are a lot of other, uh, social and cultural and environmental, uh, purposes. Yeah. And, and, and I think also just the sense of, um, Jeffrey, one of the things that you mentioned is growing grains, right? Like we've been talking about, or we will be talking about grains in in certain episodes and just how, you know, in urban areas, okay, maybe if we converted every roof into like growing grains, but for the most part, or we get another artist to like create a huge wheat field, uh, you know, in the financial district. But uh, besides that, um, you know, that could definitely be a huge issue too. So yeah, this interlocking of, uh, or this um, kind of uh, connection between urban and peri-urban and rural to all work together. Um, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, and I think um, so much of this is going to be unpredictable, but some of the things I'm most interested in personally about urban ag relate to more issues like um you know, worker cooperatives and new sort of green jobs and training. And, and I think, Jeff, you touched on something we talk about a lot of millennials, especially younger, even younger people wanting to be more involved and wanting to do something uh, about the climate 
you know, disruption crisis um, and, and, and various other sort of linked crises, um, including, you know, I think we'll see sort of waves of jobs crises. Uh, and I think that those two things will relate where people look around and say, well, what would be meaningful if I don't, if I'm not going to make money, essentially, what else could I do that would be good? So some people are not going to do that, but enough people will, where I think that could drive um, other visions, even if there isn't a great, uh, you know, Green New Deal or Red New Deal passed um, at, at the federal level, you could see sort of state level um, initiatives that could have an urban ag component, for example. And you could also see people self-organizing and, and sort of some programs coming out of genuine need. Uh, look, if you look at the cooperatives of the 60s and 70s in like Mississippi and, and throughout the South, you have a lot of especially African-American farmers organizing themselves into collectives uh, to, to be able to have food on a reliable basis and a cheap basis uh, that's good food. And um, also steward land, you know, have generational assets. And I think those are things that are still um, in play today. And, and maybe people had sort of a wake up call. Some people with, with COVID-19 where it's like, oh, wow, we have a lot of like food insecurity in a very rich country that has a lot of food, you know, absolutely. If you just looked at the numbers. Um, so I think those are all those are all factors that could maybe push some folks to do farming in general. And I think since most people live in cities, you know, you're going to see versions of that and in and around cities and exploring those those complexities of like, where does the city really stop and end with crazy sprawling U.S. development patterns? Um, you know, we're in New York, so we think of it a lot through that lens. Um, but but I think for a lot of cities like Atlanta um, growing up there, I mean, there really are forests in the city. Um, and it's just covered in trees. It's like the most tree full city I've ever seen still to this day. Um, and so it almost isn't surprising. It's actually surprising that it took them until now to do an official food forest. I'm sure lots of people have used some of that land for growing food. And I never really thought about it from a position of, of basically like privilege. Right. But I think uh, it's great that the city is supporting some some use of that land or it's not clearing the, the forest to put more houses in, but actually thinking about, you know, well, OK, what can you do in this temperate environment um, on this land? You know, what do we have abundance of? Okay, we get a lot of rain. You know, we have, you know, it's like, I think that thought process is really interesting and hopefully something, um, I know some of your your interviewees get into um, some of their own personal experiences, which I'm really excited to play those episodes. Um, so that's just a plug for the Jeff episodes that are coming <laughs> up. <laughs> but, I, I think also just building off that, you know, cities are playing catch up and I think, you know, you know, city officials and policymakers have a ton on their plate. And I think, you know, where um, agriculture has fallen through the cracks is that, um, at least in my experience, a lot of, you know, policy officials um, that I've met with and spoken to um, outside of the urban ag role and position, you know, don't have very much experience in agriculture or farming. So, you know, a city that wants to build or establish a food forest, you know, their concerns are like, um, who's going to manage this? You know, what kind of pests and animals and rodents might get into like food or fruits that fall on the ground? You know, what are the right, you know, fruit trees or species that should be grown um, in, you know, this local native environment? And I think what's so exciting about the food forest in Atlanta, and, you know, you'll hear this in the interview, is that there has been always from the start of that project community buy-in and community management of the food forest. And I think that's why um, it has been and will continue to be so successful is because this community is really the one driving and leading it, and they have the support of the city um, when they need that. And I, I think, you know, tapping into other communities that, have, you know, 
generations of agricultural history and knowledge um, and being supporters and enabling them to, you know, take on the land and to produce for the community is, is very empower, empowering um, and will only be, um, will only provide nothing but I think more access to, to those communities that do need um, more food sovereignty um, in that sense. Yeah, and I, and I think um, that's one reason why, you know, again, policy conversations are important and going to other cities and, and going beyond our own network is important. So thanks for, for sort of bringing that lens. Um, and maybe that's a good segue. Do you want to um, you briefly describe some of the conversations you're going to share with us on this season of Fields? Yeah. So, you know, I've done um, in total over 25 different interviews right now. But I think the ones that we're going to highlight and, and share on this season is um, we have an interview with Jeolu Bayue. He's the new Urban Act Director for the City of Atlanta. I was also able to speak to his counterpart, Tanizio Shamina, who is the Urban Act Manager for the City of East Point, which is the adjacent city um, southwest of Atlanta. Um, from there, I was also able to speak to Kate Lee. She's the Urban Ag Director for Washington, D.C., uh, and then Abby Coke from um, Baltimore. So, you know, super excited to to share, you know, these conversations with them and what they've learned um, and what they're doing for their cities. And really just kind of highlight, you know, how each city is taking on urban ag in its own way. Um, you know, another city that um, I would want to note um, that might not be in this season, but maybe in a future season is what the city of Philadelphia is doing in building their urban ag plan and really working with the community um, to understand what is the history of the land um, and what does the community want and need to really create a inclusive, comprehensive plan um, to promote urban agriculture for the city. Um, and that work's being done by Ash Richards. So, um, you know, there's a lot of incredible work happening around the country and um, there's only so many interviews I can do in such a period of time, but I, I hope that we can really shed some light um, on this on this in this season of you know who's doing what and how they're doing it and what are the lessons that can be shared among you know this wide network of people that want to do more for their community. Uh, that's great, yeah, and I and I think um, with that little teaser, uh, you know, maybe we can ask Jeffrey any final questions and then and then kind of wrap it up. Um, and I think we'll hear more, um, of you as we play these episodes, um, both in the interviews. And then of course we can add some sort of framing and get into, um, uh, you know, patterns that are emerging and, um, and as you said, things you'd, you'd like to get to, I think that's a lot of, uh, what we've been talking about over the years really is like, man, there's just so much to do and to study. And I think something that Melissa and I've done is have just had a lot of interviews and sometimes don't even know what to do with the tape. So I felt like a kindred spirit when you mentioned you were sort of in that same world of like just taping a lot of interviews and learning a lot. All this raw data and, and so much to process and to share, you know, it, it just takes so much time. <laughs> and that's part of the interesting thing with qualitative work too, is, is it's like, there's not like a number that we're trying to, to reach at the end. You know, we're not going to tell people like, here's the formula for Urban Act and, and this isn't really a how-to podcast. Although I know you would know a lot about that. And certainly of course, Melissa knows a lot about that. Um, and you know, we could definitely bring you back on and we can talk about some of the specific, uh, you know, we could do like episodes on like growing stuff at home using different techniques. Um, so if you're interested in those topics as well, you know, in addition to policy, um, you know, we can be in touch. 
But yeah, to, to wrap up sort of intro to Jeffrey Lano and, and some of these policy uh, episodes about different cities, um, you know, Melissa, did you have any final questions or topics that you wanted to sort of chat about today? Um, no, I feel like we, we've definitely covered a lot and, and just got a really good idea. And um, yeah, Jeffrey, also just like, you know, um, your experiences with these farmers and, and um, what, you know, these larger kind of ideas behind, you know, farming in America in general and, and what folks are doing, you know, not necessarily large scale, um, but like these smaller scale kind of sustainable farms. And it's just really interesting um, to hear about your travels from city to city and, and, and what folks are doing both in a urban, you know, policy aspect, but also in the more like peri-urban or rural areas. So, um, yeah, just really excited to, to hear these interviews and stories in general. So thank you. Of course. I'm, you know, grateful that you guys were able to, to bring me on. And um, for those that want to follow along, um, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Jeffrey Landau, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-L-A-N-D-A-U. Um, I'm doing a blog about the whole journey called Farms Unknown. So if you go to Instagram or Twitter, the link is in the bio and you can find it there, uh, jefflandau.substack.com. Um, and if you want to learn more about urban agriculture or controlled environment agriculture or anything about agriculture in cities around the world, just check out agritecture.com. Our blog um, has been running for 10 years now and continues to run. And there's some great stories on there. And there is a lot to read and a lot to learn. So um, plenty right there for everyone to start with. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, it is really an amazing blog. Um, and that's a credit to, I know, not, not only you, but the, the whole team. Um, yeah, and I, and I look forward to your own uh, blog that is extending beyond the urban in many ways and looking at these these deeper issues that intersect a lot with what we talk about on fields. So thanks again, Jeffrey, for uh, joining us today. Thanks for sharing some of your great work. We're going to uh, tee that up and that'll be coming out as part of season two and, and who knows into the future. Um, no one can think more than six months ahead. It's no longer allowed after the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> so just forget about it. Uh, yeah. And thanks uh, uh, for listening. Um, as usual, we hope everyone is planting um, indoors or outdoors as they uh, can can do. And uh, we hope you're also following Fields Podcast on Instagram. That's our main uh, sort of way to communicate. And of course, we hope uh, you subscribe. You become a supporter of uh, Heritage Radio Network, which is putting out the best food radio. Uh, so yeah, definitely check out uh, Jeffrey Lando um, and Farms Unknown. And we will be back with more Fields soon. Happy growing. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at Fields Podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 
Thanks for listening.